Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to V with Mike G, the show of life, the show of drum circles in San Antonio, cool red glasses, being an author, loving bitters, and so much more. Today's guest is the infamous, the notorious, the speakeasy on Heritage Radio host, Mr. Souther Teague. We recently sat down and chatted in San Antonio. It sounds like we're in the midst of a war with all the background noise, but it was a lively conversation and great to get to sit down and finally chat with the man himself, talk about his love of bitters, his love of service, of food, and his new book, I'm Just Here for the Drinks. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this great conversation with Souther Teague. Get a oh, what do I say here. in my radio voice? Yeah, I think I say what we are. You know, uh, 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 you're listening to the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. See, there you go, the dip. You yeah. know what you're doing. Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> <clears throat> do you do it in conversation too? I think I do over the bar. You know, yeah. when people ask me about the podcast, yeah, uh, I'll I'll say, yeah, we're live every Wednesday. It's uh, Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> you shift into that radio voice. I uh, tune in, listen to the Speakeasy. How about interviewing people? Do you ask people questions more than you did before, kind of starting this broadcast? Just in general? Yeah. In the world? Absolutely. I yeah. do, for sure. Um, I'm much more, uh, I'm trying to listen more, you yeah. know? Um, so I ask more uh, pointed questions, or I ask questions that I, I think are thoughtful. Sure. And I wait and I listen. Um, actually, since you're talking about it, uh, I'm going to be doing a few episodes of the Speakeasy coming up where I've... I've done 10 to 12 minute interviews with mm-hmm. lots of folks in the bar industry. I've got about 40 of them canned. Yeah. Um, and I edit myself out. Oh. Um, and basically, it's like documentary style. I ask a question, and I, I, before we even start, I ask them to make sure that you somehow rephrase the question in your answer. Right, right. Um, and, it, and it becomes much more compelling. Um, I was listening to Bartender at Large podcast uh-huh. with Eric Castro, Eric, yeah. and his guests were uh, Kyle and Rachel Ford. Huh? And they made those magazines for Collectif. I don't know if you saw them. They're I haven't seen them yet. They're almost the, like a book. It just came out this week. The new one just came out this week, right? I don't know when it came out, but yeah, yeah there's only a couple. Uh, new York and New Orleans for sure. And if there's a new one, I don't know about it yet. Yeah. But they were on the show, and Eric was asking Rachel how she goes about the interview process. Yeah. And I, I'm featured in the New York one, so I was intently listening to, to see if she did whatever she was about to say to me. Right. And she said... Um, I go in, I open up my notebook, I write their name at the top so they can see it. Uh, Kyle is there already taking some candid photos, mm-hmm. and then I ask one question. And I was, I was already mouthing the question before she said it, because I remembered her saying to me, where are you from? Oh, and I spoke wow. for an hour. And what she did was, every time I would, she would take notes, uh-huh. every time I would stop talking, she would look up from her notes and wait. <laughs> and I would keep talking. So... These interviews that I'm doing are like that. Yeah. Most of them are less than three questions, and I get about 14 minutes of, uh, of footage. That's great. For me, just asking one to three questions. And whenever they stop talking, I just sort of lean over <laughs> and wait. I just wait. It, and they'll give you more. It's a good tactic. It's a great technique, and I'm, I'm finding a lot of joy in it. Um, so I can ask sometimes broad questions or sometimes very specific and pointed questions, sure. and I get really genuine answers when I do this. Have you... Uh, not for what is the benefit of therapy, but have you ever been in a therapy session? Of course, yeah. Right. That's the thing. That's, yeah. what, that's what my therapist did. I'm like, what am I? I was done with the thought. And she just looks at me like, oh, yeah. I guess I'll go on. There is more. You're right. <laughs> There's more to, than, than what was just on I the surface. I didn't want to talk about this, but fine. If you're just going to sit there and stare at me, let's just dive into it. Yeah, let's get, let's get real. <laughs> so you enjoy it? I really do. Um, more than I thought I would. It's funny, too, you know, that you even mentioned the radio voice. I, um, I, I was a DJ on a local radio station in my hometown when Where I was Where are you from, by the way? Young. I grew up in the north Gulf Coast of Florida, uh, Panama City Beach. Okay. Um, and I was on, uh, call sign was I-L-N, W-I-L-N, so okay. island. Oh, nice, clever. So we'd say, island radio, reaching the beaches and shaking the lakes. <laughs> 
WILN Radio, pumping the wattage into your cottage. <laughs> well, I've, now I feel like way less clever than I did coming into this thing. Those are fucking brilliant. I, I don't have a call sign. What are the What are the four? Because it well, it's a Heritage Radio Network, but is, is, you have a call call. We don't have a call sign because we're not a bro, we're not we're internet broadcasting. I see. We're not okay. uh, airwaves. Would they get mad if you just made one up? Probably not. I'm telling you, this is it's what fun it would to be. We'll think about that as the show goes on. Yeah, it's something, I'll, right? I'll come up with one and I'll start calling it out every episode. But you have this great exposure. But, you know, I'll tell you one thing. So many of the guests that I'm sure we've both had on, probably various, multiple same guests. Yeah. I can't find much about your early life. I can't find a single place. And talking about Panama City, Panama, Panama Florida, City Yeah. The Panhandle, L.A., Lower Alabama. Could never find anything about that. Your story starts, it's almost like a fighter emerges after all of the struggle, and he's strong. And for you, this was all after the California Culinary Institute. That's when your story starts in every bit of press, going back to 1998. Yeah, I went back that far. I couldn't find anything. But what were you up to in Florida? Just hanging out. Hanging out. (laughs) Doing radio. Were you playing in a band? I was a kid. Uh, Weirdly, I was in a band when I was in high school. Nothing major. We were called uh, Frozen frozen Poetry. Our friends called us Frozen Poultry. (laughs) Both are great names, depending what kind of the sound. I don't know, man. Guitar player? Bassist. Okay. All right. Strings. And and vocals. Really? Yeah. What were you... sing like an angel. (laughs) With that radio voice, how could you not? Right. What the hell did you guys sound like? We did mostly, well, I'd say we're 50-50 covers and originals, okay. rock and roll, AOR style, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, we covered, like, some early Rolling, uh, uh, some Rolling Stones tunes. We also covered, like, some um, Guns N' Roses. And, yes. You know, and then we wrote, uh, I remember our, our lead guitarist uh, wrote most of the songs that we played. And we played around. We played, um, you know, a couple of garage parties and stuff like that in nice. Florida. It's fun. Any aspirations further than the garage nothing just kind of having a good time we were just a bunch of idiot kids you know um <clears throat> that was when i was still in high school my senior year of high school i i'd lived out of my house um yeah uh, moved out in florida still yeah yeah moved yeah. out in the summer of my junior year into a house there was six of us living in this three-bedroom house dude still going to high school yeah like we were the kings i was having probably a pretty good time we were kings <laughs> We were having parties basically every night. You know, it was the, you know the crash pad for everybody. Yeah. Uh, we destroyed the place. It was, Dude. it was good and bad. I like the I sound a lot. of it. You <laughs> learned a lot. So how about this? Is it intentional that maybe early years, the early chapters of your life are not kind of covered? Or I think th- maybe it's just uh, no. It's certainly not intentional. Yeah. So I think maybe it's just um, you know things like the internet weren't as prevalent back then. Sure. I, I You know I. I'm, I'm maybe one of your older guests. I'm 49. I'd guess my 70s. Yeah, or not my 70s. Sorry, their 70s. 70s sure. Yeah. So I'm 49. So I think maybe that stuff just doesn't exist. And also maybe I just wasn't making enough noise. You know. Yeah. I think. I think I. I'm. A, there are parts of me that are private, but I'm a pretty wide open person. Sure. So I don't hide anything. I'm, I'm out there. So so maybe. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't getting press back then. I, there, there was no press to have. I was no press I didn't to have, have anything. You know, I, didn't I don't know what this seems like. I, I don't know how press works in Florida. As yeah. far as I know, it's like a dark zone. There's not yeah. technology or anything. It's, it's hard to say. Florida man. <laughs> That's me. I'm Florida man. Every all those articles you read. <laughs> Florida man loses toe to a duck. That's me. <laughs> Gets bitten, screwed him by snake and toilet. Yeah. That's the toughest one. Yeah. that happened to a guy. Yeah, it really course. did. So. A bit of this story, though, is really fully formed by, I pre- suspect, a love of food. Traveling around yep. the, Cal- the Culinary Institute in California. When did that kind of love and that kind of passion for ingredients kind of come about? So, as a young person, I left home uh, just four days after graduating high school. Oh. I was still 17, and I left Florida, left Panama City. I've never been back to my hometown, not no once, kidding. not for five seconds. Any particular reason? I hated it there. Okay, fair, fair. It's a tourist town. Um, it's uh, gorgeous. Uh, when I lived there, it was rated the third most beautiful beach in the world. Oh. Sugar white sands made of pure silicon dioxide. The sand is powdery. Like when you kick it with your heel, it squeaks. Ooh. Phosphoresces at night. I like all of this. Which creates emerald green water. But the spring break, uh, number one spring break destination every other year. It's oh, okay. either Panama City or South Padre Island, Texas. 
some 11 years in a row, MTV Spring Breakhouse was there. Oh, man, really? Like, it's just a, you know, a... There, it, it's got a duality. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful, but it was being wrecked. Yes. And I don't know what sensibility I had as a young man, but I, I often, when I'm telling this story, I say I felt much like the, you remember the Indian who turns around and he sees all the garbage and the tear rolls down his face. It's, um... I like how we both touched our face right when we said right <laughs> You when can't said see it. that, but that was That's a moving right. moment. We're yeah, we're insane. So I don't know what in a 17-year-old's mind was going on, but that's how I look back on it. I don't think I could have articulated that at the time. Right. But when I was living there, these people would come down and they'd stack themselves like cordwood into hotel rooms of, you know, 10 guys to one room so they could do it on the cheap. They'd be eating bologna sandwiches and drinking Budweiser beer and just yeah. the beach would be littered and it was like this beautiful thing that was getting destroyed in front face. of my face. So I wanted to get out of there, um, and I did. Uh, and I left there, and I lived in 12 states since then. So Yeah, illustrious career. 13 total, yeah, including Panama, uh, Florida. But I've lived in 12 other states. And I think at first it was just my desire to get away from my hometown. Yeah. Um, but then it was my, um, I don't know, I, I, there's something in me that, that I, a good example is like I definitely have a clear memory of being like, Oh, San Francisco looks cool. Maybe I'll visit. You know what? I'll just move. And I like I'll just pack it. up and move. You know, uh, my average was about 14 months in yeah. any given place. Some places were longer. I stayed in New Orleans for almost three years. But, yeah. But, but back to your original question, what sort of spurred that? Um, I think the two things coupled together. The second place, so I left home and I moved to just six hours away, Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. And then I moved to Chicago. Oh, in Chicago, I really got into food. Now, granted, at this point, I'm maybe 19, so got into food is still sure. a reach. But I worked at a place, a restaurant that was known for fresh seafood every day, flown in from all coasts, very simply prepared and, and just simply plated. Um, and like, I, I got into the notion of like, man, this is you can make something that's delicious and appealing and, mm-hmm. and do it in a way that's I wouldn't have used the term back then but like it's crafted these guys these, these guys are crafting their work yeah that's a great point. Um, maybe without the artistic bent at that particular spot but like the, the beautiful the, the beauty of the dish was the cleanliness of it yeah and then I um, ended up moving from there to Knoxville Tennessee what so like how do you select because to me this is a random number generator I don't know what the logic is from one city to the other unless it was a girl. Was it a girl? I was about to say the Knoxville move was a woman. Yes. There we go. Okay. Um, All right. Well, that makes more sure. sense. So in Knoxville, I realized, and I worked at another restaurant, and I realized that I was into that. So then I was like, let me look into what culinary school is all about. Yeah. And that's when I ended up going to culinary school. What was one of the biggest takeaways from culinary school that perhaps you didn't have coming in? Man, it's hard for me to articulate that <laughs> the, one of the biggest takeaways was I don't think you need to go to culinary school <laughs> if I could, could tell my younger self I would say get those two jobs for six months and then yeah. do that again and again and a fourth time and there's your two year degree it's very clever um, but I didn't have me to tell me that so I went to culinary school and I feel like I paid a lot for something that I could have gotten not only for free but paid to get Yeah, more of an apprenticeship style then I had to revoke my speak about that when I went and taught at a culinary school. <laughs> so I had to tell people, no, culinary school is great and you need it. <laughs> Where was it? Was this in California too? No, I taught at the New England Culinary Institute up in Montpelier, Vermont, NECI, okay. NACI, uh, where I taught uh, senior level classes, mostly butchery. I really? Was a butcher. Favor me to, what do you like to butcher the most? Because I know, I know about the cuts, but butchering I have little, I have little familiarity with. I mean, when you really get down to the brass tacks there's no real difference except size sure right oh, that's fair the yeah. animals we and leanness eat are, maybe right the animals we eat are generally shaped the same yeah um but i i'm a huge fan of pork you know uh the thing we say all the time about pork in in the culinary field is we use everything but the squeal <laughs> like nothing goes to waste yeah it's a it's like the perfect animal i i don't know who or what god is but he gave us no greater <laughs> gift than the pig you know, that's the most quote-worthy thing anyone's ever said. Put <laughs> that in the show notes. <laughs> that's going to be the Newsflash, title. Southern Teague doesn't know who or what God is. Pork is the best. Thank you. That's it. Had you kind of established a reputation maybe in the food industry or as, a, as an expert of that stuff by the time you started to work on Good Eats? Yes. So, 
Alton Brown went to New England Culinary Institute. Oh, I didn't know that. The school that I ended up teaching at. So you're, oh. you're mixing up the timeline a little bit. So Alton, when doing his internship, which is required for yeah. passing the program, uh, he did it at a restaurant in North Carolina where I was the sous chef. That's how we met. I see. So he was my intern. That's how we met. Wow. Um, and he stayed longer than he needed to. Um, it was a, a six-month internship, and he stayed for a year. Uh, we became pretty solidly good friends. Mm. And then um, he said he's you know, got to go finish up the schooling, and then he was going off to Atlanta to create a television show. Yeah. That was his plan all along. And he called me um, a couple of years later and said, uh, uh, you know, the show is up and running and it's on the Food Network, which was, you know, relatively new at that time. Yeah. And he said, uh, how'd you like to come and be my research and technical chef? The guy that I have in that position has to leave and, and I like you and I think we had a simpatico and all this cool. stuff. So at the time, that same woman I was getting a divorce from. I see. And I was like, yeah, this is a great opportunity. Also, I like to move. Here's a great move. Damn. So I moved to Atlanta to do the show. How was the experience? He seems like, I don't know much about, I, I know the show for sure. And he seems like someone that's immensely interested in the details, which I like. Yep. You guys, you talked about Simpatico. How was it actually working together? Pretty good. Yeah. Um, so I think the reason that he called me is because I, I am that sort of personification. Like yeah. I look into things and understand them from as many angles as are available for me to understand them so that I can do them. I don't like to say better. I like to say correctly. Mm. I'm a technician, you I know. I, I don't consider myself to be a better or worse at Italian or, or Mexican cuisine. Yeah. I, I find out what I need to know, and I execute it the way I, it's supposed to be executed. Mm. Does that make sense? Sure, absolutely. So I think that's where we clicked, and then uh, and when his, that sort of was kind of a foundation of the way he was running the show. Yeah. Let's find out everything we can find out and make sure we understand why things happen the way they happen and so we can make food the way it's supposed to be made. Um, and so, yeah, it was great. It was great working with him. He's, um, he has that same mindset himself, you know. Yeah. And it seems like you were on his podcast as well. Was that a nice return to kind of things? How was that experience? <laughs> that was great. I wish he still had it. You know, uh, it was. I thought it was a great show. He, you know, he had. I think my favorite guest that he had on was uh, Shatner. William Shatner. Oh, was on geez, show. he had Shatner on. Dude, go listen to that episode. Everybody, wow. go listen to that episode. The reason is. Um, Shatner just takes over. Before you know it, Shatner's interviewing Alton, basically. <laughs> it's great. It, like, the, the whole thing gets flipped. It's oh, that's a great crazy. episode. You ever listen to Alec Baldwin's podcast? No. He does a little bit of that. He was interviewing Billy Joel, and I love Billy Joel to death. And it was still a little bit of an Alec Baldwin show. And I'm like, dude, come on. It's Billy Joel. Just let, it, let him have a little bit. But do you, do you find that? I like that we were talking about the strategy behind interviewing. And you're like, I just want to listen. Which yeah. I think is really, really sound. But that experience for you do you feel like you got your information out there that it was a nice rhythm oh man you guys? it was huge yeah. uh I, I still you know because of the nature of how podcasts work you yeah. know just because it's several years old doesn't mean people aren't listening to it for the first time that's today. right yeah um so uh i still get people who walk into the bar and they say i heard about you on alton brown's show and so yeah. that's great um yeah and then Al alton later so that to finish that timeline alton i left the show i moved to new orleans um, Alton still has a great relationship with New England Culinary because he's sort of their favorite son graduate. Yeah, he reached out to me to say they were looking for a position as a senior level teacher oh, and cool. instructor. He thought I would be right for the job. I called them; they thought I'd be right for the job, and so I went for it. Do you like that aspect of it? The education piece, actually being a little less hands-on. I well, at Necky, it's really still very hands-on. Okay. Every single class you take at New England Culinary Institute is serving live human beings from day one. So I could construe that. <laughs> Serving live human beings. <laughs> Let's leave it up to the people listening to determine what that really what that means. means. Yes. Well, that's good. That makes sense. Yeah. So we're operating live restaurants. You know, the butchery is where I spent most of my time, and the yeah. butchery services those restaurants. You know, just like at a restaurant today, you call the butcher shop and tell them what you want. So all those outlets that we had in the school yeah. collectively would call the butcher shop and put their orders in, and my students would cut those meats and send them to the places that's they need so, to go. That's great. So you're always, you know, it's like a little insular community of its own yeah, a continuum bakery and a couple you know there was what four restaurants and the butcher shop and the commissary and yeah. so it all fed itself so you've been in new york a while now i know oh, we may be skipping skipping ahead but no, that's, that was the next step i came to new york from necky what year were we the talking? job i just hated the town 
Oh. Uh, Montpelier, Vermont is the smallest state capital. And as I mentioned, I moved around a lot, mostly to pretty big metropolitan areas. Yeah, Chicago's big. Chicago, San, San Francisco, Francisco LA, New Orleans, DC. Yeah. Montpelier. <laughs> it's like a tiny dot. It had one at the time it had one red light and I'm kidding you not at all. It was at the corner of State and Maine. Are you kidding me? No, sorry, State you said Maine. you weren't kidding. Oh, that's State and Maine. Like that is about boring. as predictable as it can be. Pretty boring. It is an amuse bouche of a city. Right. <laughs> um yeah. So, so New I York, hated the tininess of it, but I had signed a contract to how long I had to be there, so I stayed for my contract and then Yeah. Was very excited to get back to a big city, so I jumped to the nearest big city I could. Yeah, that's you know, so that we we know all these people. Yeah, they come in, they wave, and they're like, "Oh, you're doing the thing. Good on you." Yeah, exactly. But New York, that's a, that's a big one. The biggest. Yeah, well, it was yeah. also the nearest, right? Oh, that's so fair. I was in yeah. I was in Montpelier, and my targets were either going to be Boston or New York. Yeah. So I definitely bounced over to uh, New York City. Got there sight unseen. I'd mm-hmm. never been to New York. I rented an apartment over the phone. Really? Uh, and I decided that the first thing I was going to do is get a job in the front of the house in a restaurant. Yeah. And uh, make some quick cash and learn the city and figure out where my next step needed to be to go into the kitchen. Right. And the very first place that I applied to work happened to be managed by a guy named Alex Cochon, who formerly worked for the restaurant Herb Saint in New Orleans, which is connected to. Cobalt and, and Bayona by Susan Spicer, who I worked for. Oh, cool. So he knew me, and he pointedly asked me, you don't want to cook here, do you? Because it was a much different style of restaurant than sure. we had worked in. Um, and I said, no, I, I think there's you know good margins here. I see that the price point is right, that if I work here on the front of the house, and I'm mm. working basically for commission tips, I'll make enough money. I said, I won't screw you over. I'll stay for six months, but I've got to, then I'll have to go back to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. He said, "Have you ever bartended?" And that's the rest is that's why we're here today. What were you <laughs> drinking at that time before actually being a bartender? Anything? Drinking? Oh, I yeah. drank a lot. I'm, I've always been a fan of drink. Good, um, good. I'm, I'm a southerner, uh, Scottish descent. I drink a lot of whiskey. <laughs> um, but at that time, you know, I didn't think of drinks as uh, the way I think of them now, which is I think of them more like cuisine. Sure. Like there's ways to layer them and build them and make them beautiful and yeah. But whiskey guy though. For sure, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, mostly, okay. mostly American whiskey and s- spattered with some Scotch whiskeys. And now it's you know you. There's not a place you hadn't worked at now. You know, I think about this. Cause what year did you end up in New York? I guess it's 18 years ago now. 17? 18, yeah. 17 years Intense. ago. Intense. Yeah. And you've done a lot of different things. I yeah. say without exaggeration. <laughs> no, man, a lot. <laughs> How are you feeling? Feel great. I love 18 it. years, you know. I love it. Um, you know, I stayed behind that bar for three years. Yeah. It took at least a year for me to start questioning my own self and understanding why I wasn't jumping back into the kitchen where sure. I was doing well. I was, a, you know, I was well known in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, and it it dawned on me that it was the guest interaction that I had never had. So it was a piece I didn't know, right? Oh, right. So when you're behind the bar, unlike being behind the double doors, you're part of the experience for the guest yeah. to whatever level they'd like. If you want me to just drop the drink and walk away, that's, that's what you want, that's what you'll get. If you mm-hmm. want me to tell you every intimate detail about this drink and the pieces of the drink that are here and where they were made and who they were made by and how I come up with the idea, like yeah. we can do that too. But I'm part of it now. How did you... Do you like? Did you like people at that point? You know what I mean? Because sometimes I've never liked like people. <laughs> um, Charles Bukowski said, uh, "It's not that I don't like people; it's just that I feel better when there are none around." <laughs> See, that works. Serving humans every day. Serving live humans every day. <laughs> but I mean, um, it's a skill like anything else. But do you think naturally you were gregarious enough? And I do. Uh, I've always been a pretty chatty fellow. Um, I, I, I like to think I contribute to conversations in, in many ways. And, yeah. you know, um, you when you're in the back of the house, you're surrounded by the same crew of folks every single day. Mm. Whereas in the front of the house, behind the bar, uh, it's every single day is a new set of people sitting at the bar. You know, some we see over and over, but sure. many we, we see one time forever. Yeah. Um, so I, I really enjoy the... Like that nature, that aspect, you know, getting to interact with someone, show them a good time, reveal them, reveal to them something they've is new to them or yeah. that they've never heard of, or you know, uh, have the opportunity to turn them on to something that they maybe never even thought of. Um, 
I don't know. It's great. It's my favorite part. I, I like that, too. This is kind of a new face every day. I mean, I heard, well, I was, I'll tell you after. This, this is kind of a funny anecdote about Alzheimer's, if there ever was one. But nonetheless, it's good to kind of connect with people and meet them and talk. And did you learn about yourself, too? You oh, know, every day. Talk? Yeah. Of course. Um, you know, I think it, it, we can even tie it back to my time at New England Culinary, where I was a teacher. Teaching is learning. Yeah. Every day that I taught, I learned. So if we can extrapolate that statement into your everyday life, mm -hmm. then, yeah, every single day that I'm interacting with people that I've never met before, yeah. I'm learning something about them, of course, but I'm learning something about me in that interaction. You know, everybody, you know, like people have specialties. Some people are known for agave. Some people are known for whiskey, scotch, whatever. But you're known as the bitters guy. I'm the bitter guy. I still have that pen you gave me last year. <laughs> I've, I, I love that pen, man. It's a beautiful pen. It's, and it's become the icon of the bar. Yeah. Amor y Amargo. Right? Amor y Amargo. Love and bitters. When did you fall in love with bitters? So I think that that is, I, I believe, I don't sure. think, I believe it. It's very closely related to my past as a chef. Yeah. Bitters and uh, Amari or bitter, the potables, are, um, they're savory in many yeah. ways. And sure. I was a savory chef for, for, you know, a dozen years. And I think that when I first got behind the bar, I went wild. I went every direction I could go. I was trying to, you know, figure it out. Yeah. And over time, I realized, oh, the drinks that I prefer seem to be this model. Mm. They seem to be more spirit forward. They seem to be more stirred, more boozy, more savory, more bitters, more amaro. Oh, here we go. Now we're specializing. Yeah. And then I went down this crazy rabbit hole. There's lots of them to discover, right? Man, they just keep popping up. Was there one you think, if there was a so-called quintessential bitter, do you think there's a sipping bitters that everyone at least should try to get introduced to? I mean, I think there are the obvious gateways, yeah. you know, Campari, you're going to have yourself a Negroni, that's going to be your introduction to what bitter drinking is. Yeah. Um, things like Amaro Montenegro, which are juicy on the mouthfeel. Juicy, yeah, that's a great sure. word for yeah, it. Yeah, orange blossom and bitter orange. Yeah really mouth-fillingly juicy, but then have that soft, bitter finish. Sure. Um, then you can climb the ladder to things like Amaro Nonino. Oh, I love Nonino. Grappa-based tomorrow. Um, but is there a quintessential one? I don't think so, because I think, for instance, at the bar, I often see a couple of folks come in, a pair of dudes, guy and a girl, doesn't matter, whatever, yeah. two people, and the one of them has experience with with drinking sure. Amari, and the other has zero. The one with the experience wants to rush the one without experience to the finish line. Oh. You've got to try Fernet Branca. Oh, right. My right, thinking right. is, no, <laughs> you don't. You're going to try Fernet Branca, and you're not going to like anything else. That's a great point. I need you to start kind of at the beginning sure. and work your way towards that goal. Um, because bitterness is... Uh, it's, it's, we only taste five things. Sweet, yeah. sour, salty, umami, which means savory, and bitter. Yeah. Um, but of them, only bitter is, is an acquired taste. Your mind tells you when you taste anything bitter yeah. that it's potentially dangerous and possibly poisonous. So your taste buds don't get a say in the matter. As right. soon as it touches your taste buds, your brain says bad for you. So you have to try it again and maybe a third time and possibly even a fourth time sure. before you can get your brain to go, okay, it's not going to kill me. What's it taste like? Yeah. So, you, you know, people say, I, I, I tried Fernet Branca and I hated it. I say, well, try it again and again, and possibly even again. Uh, An analogy I've got, and maybe you feel the same way, maybe you don't. No Country for Old Men did not work for me the first time. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Second time? Oh, it's better. It took about four times. Yeah. They're like, classic. Yeah, and you have to be uh, willing as the consumer right. to push yourself to have that second try. You have to be like, you know what, I didn't care for that. Yeah. But if I try it again, maybe I will. And here's how I kind of relate to what you're saying with an analogy that people can grasp onto. I say, we're born with a very sweet palate. Yeah. We come out of the womb craving sweeter, sweeter things because those things are generally not poisonous. And they're also generally calorically dense, which we need for growth and survival. A absolutely, yeah. And then, like I said, bitter being an acquired taste, if kids ran the world, there'd be no broccoli. <laughs> so yeah. as, a, as an adult, you have to say to yourself, I get it that I didn't like broccoli when I was a kid, but I like it now. I get it that the first time I had Fernet Branca, I didn't like it, but I should try it again. Yeah. So always trying those things again. 
I think that's good. And I think that that's actually a, an, an emblem of how you should treat people. Don't sure. ever expect they're going to be a certain way. Always be open to change yeah. and people maturing and evolving, right? We're all, we're all doing that, and we're doing it side by side. And sometimes that brings us closer together. Sometimes that drifts us further apart. Yeah. But, yeah. Man, give me one second. Thanks, guys. You can, you can see the, the drunkness, so you gotta like intervene a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. um, what, when you think about experiences, so you want people to be open and you want them to find out on their own, not be too prescriptive. But when someone walks into Love and Veterans, what is the right experience that you wanna have them experience in there? First of all, I give it total credit to every single person who walks in the door because it's kind of intimidating yeah so just getting in the door i give you credit now you're overwhelmed by the wall of amaro that's sure. behind me the bartender in foreign languages mind you all in foreign languages right. all with labels you've never seen yeah all the words on the menu are a language you don't know right it's intimidating i get it so i try and do as many things as i can to soften that blow Every single guest gets greeted within 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, within uh, 60 seconds, so I hand you a menu in your hand. I look you in the eye when I do so. I don't lay it down. I hand it to you. Yeah. Make eye contact. I want you to know you're in the right place. I mean, these, these eyes are kind of stunning. So Thank you. I, like, I want you I'm like, you're give me the menu. Right? Yes, yeah. please give me the menu. <laughs> I want you to know you're in the right place and that I'm here to help. You know? Yeah. Uh, I've written the menu in such a way that it lists, of course, the ingredients that are in the drink, but then right above that, in fact, First, yeah. it lists what the drink tastes like. Oh, so when great. people say, I don't know any of the ingredients in this drink, I say, does the description sound good to you? This one says, uh, uh, you know, uh, leather and island spices. Yeah. Does that sound good to you? That's why you're, going, that's why you're asking me about it, because it sounds good. Then you don't need to know what's in it. If it sounds good, you'll like it. Yeah, that's good. That's I'll tell you everything about it, but like, if you think it sounds good, you'll like it. Yeah. So I try and say, like, don't read the words you don't recognize. Read the ones you do. That's how I wrote the it's menu clever. for you. I'm trying to help. And what I want them to experience is, you know, a good time. Yeah. Uh, and in that good time, maybe we'll learn something together about Amaro and Bitters. Maybe we won't. Maybe you just come in and have a Negroni because that's your standard. I love that. I, I often tell people, because they'll often come in and they'll say, well, I kind of wanted a Negroni, but this place looks like it does so many other things. I feel like I shouldn't get a Negroni, but that's usually what I drink. Yeah. And I say, listen, Bruce Lee was a man of action, not words. <laughs> but he very famously said, I don't fear the man who practices 10,000 punches one time each. I fear the man who practices one punch 10,000 times. Yeah. Have you had 10,000 Negronis? Because if you haven't, then let's have a Negroni. <laughs> what, what, what do you get? I mean, there's this kind of sage-like attitude you have about the bar and about bitters. I mean, where does... Do you, does this come from your worldliness? Does this come from being inspired by people around you? Where does this kind of insight in? I'm sure. I think it's all that stuff. I think I, I as mentioned before, I do have a mind that, that wants to have answers. Yeah. So I look for answers all the time. Um, I, as mentioned before, I was a teacher. I think teaching is just being able to deliver those answers to people in ways that allow them to get it on their own. Yeah. So... I see phrases and I extrapolate them and turn them into teaching tools. Mm. You know, that thing from Bruce Lee, that's just a way for me to teach you that, like, it's totally okay for you to have another Negroni. Yeah. It's Why a, not? There's a kindness. I'm real good at making them. <laughs> but there's a kindness there, in a yeah. way, right? Like, there's a compassion that sure. not everybody has. I think um, I really mindfully approach my work. Uh, inside of the notion of to remain unjaded. Yeah. You know, uh, the example that I give when I talk about this is I say, and I've said it to crowds of folks at, at, at places like San Antonio Cocktail Conference, I'll say things like, how many times have you been at your bar mm. and the lights are on and the music's playing and the door says open and, uh, you know, you've got your A-frame sign outside with some funny little joke and 
there's even maybe already a couple of people sitting at the bar having a drink. Yeah. And someone walks in the door and they look at you and they say, Are you open? <laughs> Very trying And like question. the inside voice in my head screaming at them, <laughs> saying, you just walked past the A-frame outside to the door that says open, and you opened it because it was unlocked, and you came inside this room that's lit and music's playing. There are even people here drinking. Yeah. Of course we're fucking open. <laughs> but my outside voice says, absolutely, here's a menu. Welcome. Yeah. Because what they're not asking me is, are you open? What they're asking me is, is this the right place? That's a great point, because they are asking that. They're not asking me, do I have a bathroom? They're asking me, where is the bathroom? Right. So I have to remain unjaded so that I can get to the question that they're actually asking and answer it, as you said, in a kind of a kind and compassionate way. Yeah. I want you to feel welcome here. I need you to be greeted when you come in the door. You're stepping off the streets of New York City into a room that doesn't belong to you. Yeah. Some of my bartenders have asked me in the past, why is it so important to you to, to greet every single person when they come in? And I said, well, we as, a t- we as an industry refer to our business as the house. Yeah. If someone walked into your home, how long would it be before you greeted them? Immediately. Absolutely. Every time. So I need to, and that greeting again is not to say anything else except, hey, you're in the right place. Welcome. Come on in. Yeah. This is it. You found it. We were waiting for you. Yeah. It's, it's a kindness and kind of a sentiment that I think is missing from a lot of people. And I'm not necessarily in the hospitality industry, but just people in general. Yeah, oh, no, I agree. Um, I think we're becoming more and more, you know, I don't want to be that guy who beats no. on that drum, but, like, there's a lot of ways we're becoming more and more disconnected from sure. one another, although we think we're more connected. It's a weird kind Our of... devices that we look at all the time instead of looking in people's eyes. You got it. It's um, illusion. Uh, yeah. I get that in ways it's actually connecting us more. Yeah. But in many, many ways it's disconnecting us. I think we're, we're, collect- we're, con- we're connecting more as, like, a hive mind but we're connecting less as individuals. Sure. Um, that's tough. It is tough. Uh, especially in the business that I've chosen, which is, honestly, I just want to have a party every night Yeah. Um, and introduce people to one another and introduce them to myself and, uh, you know, get to know them on some new level. Sure. Well, it's enriching for you, too. Absolutely. You know? My I life is powerfully enriched by this. Yeah. Do you get, do you get recharged and revived Revitalize these three synonyms. Jesus, it's all start with her. When you do these interviews for the for your podcast, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, um, I love having our guests on, and, and you know, uh, we have people ranging from the, the people who operate the doors at some of the best bars in in the world to obviously bartenders, bar backs, bar owners, spirits makers, uh, yeah. ambassadors, spirits writers, other podcast producers. Yeah. Uh, I, I love it. Like I love that there's. Just as I looked at my sort of previous business, which was being a chef, I look at this business, you know, the bar, the bar side of it all. There are so many things we can do inside of the industry that are so different, yeah. but it's all still the same business, you know? Um, right. You're, you're, you're right. There's a lot. I sometimes feel, so I, you know, I have a distillery and I've done that part of it, but I feel like because I haven't worked behind the bar, even though I was in sales for a long time, working Best Buy for God's sakes, that's helping people out, being nice, being kind, getting them what they need. I still feel like I feel outside of the industry in a way, even though I've talked to everybody that's been touching, not literally, customers for so many years, you know? I mean, but to your point, that makes me feel good because it's a community where we can do I other mean, I call things. it like industry adjacent, you yeah, know? Yeah, for um, sure. I think a good example of that is, you know, I had uh, uh, Tess Mix on the show oh, yeah, uh, yeah. some time ago, and she's, you know, Ivy Mix's sister, of mm-hmm. course, which kind of gives her some cachet immediately to right. our business. But also that she has her own uh, production company yeah. making films, cool. and many of the films that she makes are commercials for spirits, uh, or all the films, the little short films that tells the cocktail, all these things. And I'm yeah. like, that's totally industry adjacent. Let's get you on the show. Yeah, dude. It, it, She's like, but I'm not really in it. And I was like, you're not not in it. Yeah, you're not not in it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, these can, the way that, that you talk, the way that you use language, I feel like it was only time that you would put it into written form into what form written oh yeah so i did mm. finally and i mean you got a drink i have a drink i, I hope you're here for the conversation as well i'm here for the conversation <laughs> right now but in general i'm just here for the drinks 
How's that been going? Your first book, right? My first book, yeah. Um, it is overwhelming. Yeah. It's incredible. I feel uh, really, I'm very proud of it. Yeah. You know, um, I was about to say lucky, but I don't like lucky. Uh, you know the old saying, uh, the harder I work, the luckier I get. <laughs> so it's not about luck. It's about work. I work. Yeah. I work a lot. Um, but the book's doing really well. Uh, I don't really understand this business, so I yeah. can't speak to it too much. But my editors keep telling me things are going great. The book came out uh, on August 28th uh, by the end of the year. So January or December 31st, he told me we'd sold uh, 7,500 copies. That's amazing. Apparently, that's a big deal yeah. for a book of this type. You know, yep. uh, It's not like a Stephen King novel. It's just right. a, a book about drinking. Nobody getting tied up. Right. You know what I'm saying? Hobbled. <laughs> Oof. Um, but it's great. Uh, people are really responding to it. I wrote it with a broad enough stroke that I think it reaches a lot of folks. I wrote, um, you know, it's, it's basically three parts to the puzzle. Yeah. Uh, they're all mixed together. Um, but it's enough uh, research and uh, um, reference material to keep nerds excited. Sure. But before it gets too boring, I back away from that and I go into anecdotal material about yeah. my time using some... Some of the things I'm talking about are visiting their home origins, right. you know, going to France and drinking cognac and, and using those things. And then, it's, and then it's recipes from myself and my friends. I've got 10 guest bartenders in the book. Yeah. Um, and it's been doing exceptionally well. That's great numbers, man. Especially, Andy, that's not even this fiscal year yet, right? So yeah. you still got a whole quarter. It's about to wrap up next month. Couldn't be happier, you know. Do you, did it take a bit of introspection? To yeah, go? sure. For sure. Um, but also, I was really ready to write it. Um, oh. I, after we've got the ball rolling, I dug through my own emails because I was like, I know I've talked about this. Yeah. And I, you know, did a phrase search in my emails and I found um, that nine years ago, a interview with me on a now defunct internet magazine called, um, um, oh shit, I can't remember the name. Uh, I'll come back to the name of that. Sure. But but uh, it's now gone. It was, a, it was an online magazine. Metro Mix. Okay. Um, and uh, the, they had interviewed me about a bar that I was the head bartender at at the time, whatever. But the last question of the interview was, so what's next for Southern Tea? And I said, I'm thinking about writing a book called oh, I'm Just man. Here for a Drink. Oh, that's clever. And so that was nine years ago. So it was in there kind of percolating. Gestating. Is that the word? Yeah, yeah. sure. Gestating. And then it birthed itself in short order. So once we inked the deal... It took less than six months for me to write it, wow. and then it was on the shelves in less than a year. So we started the process in October, and we were on shelves on August 28th. That's amazing. Yeah. So it was in there, ready to come out. So, you know, you got many great years ahead of you. The book is a distinct chapter that occurs in someone's career. Sure. I'm not exactly sure, besides TV, what happens after the book. Funny what you should say that. You got, you got something? Oh, where Maybe. you end up? What do you got? Um, I've been approached about doing a television show um, where I would be the host and we would uh, um, kind of go around and visit bars and visit you know, distilleries and makers and yeah. talk about how, how and why they're doing the things they're doing. What do you think about that, being I on I, camera? I think I got a face for radio. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you reconcile the two feelings? I think if we if we move forward on this, I will be going to the gym a lot. <laughs> I'll be I'm just here for the gym. <laughs> That's the next book. Yeah, because you know it's it's hard. How do you find that balance between health and enjoying this industry? Is it a difficult one for you at 49? Sometimes it is. You know, I was in a car accident uh, about two years ago. Yeah. Uh, I was on my bicycle and I was hit by a car, um, and I broke my humerus. Oh, jeez. Uh, broke the ball in my humerus, actually, almost in half. Oh, wow. It's not as, it's not as funny as it sounds. That's true. I like it. This was good. I was waiting for you. To, okay, if thanks. you weren't going to do it, I was going to do it. <laughs> I usually do it because if I don't, the other person does. <laughs> um, so uh, that was right about the time I was turning 47. I'm 49 now. Uh, I couldn't work for six months. I gained uh. a pretty substantial chunk of weight. And I think also my metabolism changed as an older man. Right. Uh, so now it's, it feels very difficult to shake the weight off. Um, but uh, So that's sort of answering your question. But I don't think it's that hard for me to stay mindful of myself in this business. I, 
you know, I, I certainly drink more than the average person. Yeah. I don't think I drink more than the average person in my position. Sure. And I think um, I moderate, you know. I, I do a lot of things to moderate. Uh, I don't do dry uary. I hate that. I do think too. it's stupid. I tell people all the time, you're taking 31 days off in a row. That's not moderation. That's black and white. You're absolutely right, yeah. Why don't you take Tuesday off all year? That's 52. Oh, that's Tuesdays. what I do. I don't yeah. drink on Tuesdays. Really? Yeah. We're not on Tuesday, right? Okay, good. Saturday. Yeah, Saturday. I caught you on a good day. So I'm glad. But also, you have to understand that when you do that dry month, whether it's January or sober October or whatever you call it, that's a shock to your system to just shut this, you know, alcohol's a drug. You're just yeah. shutting this drug off and then you're turning it right back on after that month is over. Sure. And also, you'll feel defeated if you slip up. Yeah. You'll feel bad about yourself if you have a drink because it happens to be somebody's birthday and you don't want to miss that because you're doing your dry January or whatever. Yeah. Poor, poor person, that's, it's their birthday every year in January, like whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, but if you do Tuesday or Saturday, whatever, pick a day, yeah. that's 52. If it happens to be someone's birthday, you don't have to feel terrible that you drank on a Tuesday. Sure. You got 51 more to go. Like, that's moderating. And it's manageable. And it's more manageable. Yeah. And it's smarter. And also, dry you where it hurts the business. <laughs> you hear that, business. people? It's not good Revenues for business. Revenues are down. It's not good for business. business. Yeah, we have to kind of brace ourselves for that. <laughs> I thought, I think it's such a, I mean, to mirror your sentiment, I think it's utter foolishness. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I'm not going to eat bad for a month. Okay, fine. And then you do it 11 other months. How are you helping yourself out anyway? Right. It's about a lifestyle, right? Yeah. Maintaining reasonable things. Moderation. Moderation. But you know what? It's, you know, excess and having no alcohol at all, those eventually will even out. So if you just take a score for each, you can average right in the middle, of, which is moderation. Yeah. So it's hard to say. All right. So TV thing. This is good. You've got the iconic red glasses. Yeah. They became like my personal icon immediately upon putting them on. The funny thing is, I'm, uh, for your listener, my, my glasses are bright red. Yes. Um, the funny thing is, I am red-green colorblind. Oh, no kidding. I did not know they were red when I picked them out. Did you think they, what color did you think they were, black? Kind of brown. Brown, brown glasses. <laughs> I liked them because I could see the arm inside of the plastic. <laughs> That's really what drew me to them. It's my first pair of glasses ever. I wasn't happy to get them in the first place. I thought they were going to make me look old. <laughs> I still do. And now you look like you're part of like T-Rex or one of those glam rock fans from the 70s. This is great. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I like that you're color. It just is an even more cute story. Yeah. Because now you got this brand icon. Oh, yeah, for sure. I don't think I can get another pair of glasses. I think I have to just put new prescriptions in these forever. I wonder if people wouldn't recognize you if you wore a standard pair of black glasses. It's weird. I've only had them for two years. For the other 47 years of my life, I didn't have them. <laughs> what if you're at a black tie event? I wear them. Okay. All I right. Them. They're a party. They're fixed. They're fixed. I, I can't really see that well without them. <laughs> one, of the, one of the few remaining questions I got for you is one of the things, like, you got this keen fucking killer merchandise surrounding bitters. Do you design this stuff or do you work with someone? You're wearing an Amari shirt that oh, is in the form rad. of Atari. That's so rad. This is one of my favorite shirts. Yeah. This was a gift. From, no, someone makes this. I don't. It's a gift from my friend Stefan Waz. He owns a place called the Porco Lounge in... Um, Cleveland, Ohio. Great guy, great, yeah. great bar. But yeah, this is the Atari symbol, but it says Amari. I mean, that's more brilliant than anything I've seen today. Yeah, beyond brand, right? Yeah. Um, but no, you're talking about my pins, um, and uh, and we even made some T-shirts for a while at Amari Margo. No, and even the cover of my book um, are all designed by the same person. Her name is Natalie Check. Mm. Um, she's uh, Check dot please on Instagram. Cool. C Z E C H like the country. Check out. Yeah. Uh, she and I date, so it's. Oh, I see. Yeah, she does all the sign work for Mori Margo. Like I said, the cover of my book, the pins. Uh, yeah, she's the best. You had like a killer shirt on last year too. It was another oh, wow. 80s icon. I can't remember what it was. Where did we get that? Like, I'm going to put a link. A gift. I don't Dude, know. Stefan, where did we get this? We can ask Stefan. We got to figure that out. Well, as all good conversations do, they come to a close. But I got a question for you. I'm trying to think about it because I know I'm positive you've been asked this before. So I'm trying to think what would be really specific to you. How about 80s rock bands? Okay. You can drink any Amari you want, but you want to hang out and have a conversation. I don't care where you are. It doesn't matter. With any 80s rock band, who do you want to just hang out with? An 80s rock band? Specifically yeah. the 80s? Uh, we can go 70s if you want. That's fine. The 80s is yeah. fine. 
fond decade for me. I mean, because I know this random piece of trivia, which may not be too random, actually, do you know who the number one selling rock band of the 80s was of the entire decade? Man, I hope it was Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis in the news. Yes! Huey Lewis in the news. Yes. Number one selling band of the entire decade. <laughs> and I think Tell to myself, me. you know, I only own sports. It's the only album I ever owned. Right, from right. And, and you think, how are they, all their other albums combined, there was the number of the decade. Yep. But I hear any song of Huey Lewis that comes on and I know every word. Dude. I only owned one album. It's because they were just ubiquitous in the 80s. So maybe I'd sit down with Huey Lewis. I, you know, <laughs> I was like, how much does Southern I really have in common? That would be my answer, 100%. Really? I love Huey Lewis so much, man. It's feel-good music. Dude, and he he just seems a light, uh, like a really nice guy. Like, have some good music with the decent lyrics and throw in some brass. Yes. Like, that's rock and roll, man. Ba -na -na -na. That's fucking Huey Lewis right there. Just these punches of brass. It's amazing. And I, I, I say this, and this isn't... I feel so bad because he's been losing his hearing. Oh, no. Did you know that? They were on tour... And he had, they had to stop because he's losing his hearing. I almost started to cry. Jeez. I seriously fell for the dude. Right. The harder rock and roll. Still beaten. In Cleveland. Where <laughs> 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 you can, where I can get this shirt. Yeah. See, it all ties back together. It all comes around. I hope to visit you soon in New York, and I hope we can talk more at the bar, anywhere else, all the well, places. Well, you know, man. open invitation when you come to New York. Please yeah. uh, come and be on my show. We're, we're live in studio. The hunter becomes the hunted. That's right. My favorite phrase. Southern, it was brilliant chatting with you, man. Had a great time. Thank you so much. I will talk to you soon, yeah? I look forward to it. Thank you. So what do you guys think? The consummate host, Mr. Souther Teague, a writer, a talker, a conversationalist, and at heart, a bartender. You know, go check him out at Amore Amargo. Have yet to go, but I just want to hang out with him and drink bitters. This is the whole point, I think, of the show, right? As you hear these conversations, it's like, dude, I just want to sit down and drink with this person. This seems so cool. So that's it. He's cool. And I'm glad I got to sit down, even if it was the craziest and loudest San Antonio cocktail conference I've attended yet. It was a pleasure to get to know the man himself and check out his new book i'm just here for the drinks because that's an ideology in addition to a great book title so thanks everybody for listening to show to v with mike g no matter how many horror movies you plan on watching during the month of october or if you finally just saw jennifer's body and thought this is pretty good please keep dancing